welcome to the Dementia Researcher Podcast, brought to you by University College London and the NIHR in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hi everybody, I'm Dr Anna Volkmer and I am delighted to be back in the hot seat to host this week's Dementia Researcher podcast. Now, in 2017, the Global Action Plan on the Public Health Response to Dementia 2017 to 2025 was unanimously adopted by the World Health Organization member states. The Global Action Plan provides a set of actions to realize the vision of a world in which dementia is prevented and people with dementia, living with dementia and their carers, receive the care and support that they need to live a life with meaning and dignity. Today, we're going to be discussing the World Health Organization's Global Observatory Knowledge Exchange Platform and the Blueprint for Dementia Research. As both a senior research fellow at UCL and a clinical speech and language therapist specialising in dementia, implementation of research into practice is actually what motivated me to do research in the first place. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Mann, a person living with dementia and a peer reviewer for the World Health Organization's Global Dementia Observatory Knowledge Exchange Platform. Hello Jim. And Laura Garcia-Diaz, who works for the World Health Organization's Brain Health Unit. Hi, Laura. Hey, Anna. Now, you're both here to talk to us about how the Global Observatory Knowledge Exchange Platform aims to support this whole process. Jim and Laura, before we get started, would you like to tell tell us a little bit about yourselves and the platform to get us going? Perhaps, Laura, you could go first. Sure. Thank you, Anne. And thanks so much for having us today. We're very excited to talk about a topic that I think the three of us are quite passionate about, which is uh, implementation of research findings. So as you mentioned, I work for the WHO's Brain Health Unit, and I've been fortunate enough to facilitate a lot of the processes that go behind the platform. So I'll talk a little bit more about that through our conversation. And I have worked in knowledge translation related to dementia, Gosh, for about five years now, I started in Canada and in this new role, I, I've been working with Jim in different parts of the world and we are united again here today. So it's always delightful to be you know, with him in these spaces and I look forward to the conversation. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Laura. Jim, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Jim Mann and I live in uh, on the west coast of Canada. and. and I have uh, Alzheimer's and have had that since February, or the diagnosis since February 2007. And following that, I've been very active uh, on uh, various boards and and, uh, uh, various research um, projects um, here and in other countries and and, uh, otherwise keep busy and uh, some of it being uh, uh, writing, uh, but always using the experience of myself with dementia, but also of my uh, following along my mother's journey with dementia. 
Well, thank you so much for being here today. It's such a privilege to have you here, Jim and Laura. Um, I'm going to get straight into the questions. Um, I wonder, this platform, can you tell us a bit more about this platform, Laura, and what the benefits are of submitting a resource for consideration for inclusion in the platform? Sure. So the platform was uh, launched in 2021. So it's been a few years since, you know, the platform became live. And it's meant to provide a space for researchers, policymakers, really anyone working in the dementia field that has developed any source of resource related to dementia to share those resources globally, uh, to support one another, to really attain the goals or the targets that are outlined in the global action plan for the public health response to dementia. We know that one of the biggest challenges for a lot of researchers is translating the research into practice. So we get into research because we want to, you know, impact and make changes. And then the research is done. And typically what happens is we have a peer review article, it gets published and we kind of go to the next project. And, and there's not always that opportunity to think about how can we actually translate what we have into either a practical tool or influence policy so that we can see actual changes taking place um, in our day-to-day -day lives. And one way of addressing that is really by having a dissemination plan from the beginning and then thinking about tools that we can create to translate those findings. And the platform provides an avenue for researchers to then disseminate that work more globally. So I always envision, you know, people coming together, exchanging resources and hopefully eliminating duplication of efforts. We know that a lot of time, resources, energy goes into developing these resources. So ideally, this would be a place where we can share some of that to, to lower the duplication of efforts and really work together to improve the lives of people living with dementia globally. When a, plot, when a resource gets submitted to the platform, it goes through a peer review process. So that's another avenue of disseminating that work because we have pre-reviewers from all over the world that then have their eyes on these resources. And oftentimes they will email me and say, I'm so glad I found this resource and now I'm going to be sharing it with my colleagues. So that's another avenue. And similarly, we have a focus group of people living with dementia, which Jim will be able to talk to more about it. And they also have shared with me, like, I'm so glad we found this resource. Now I can share it with other colleagues of mine or people living with dementia that I know. So that's just another way that we're supporting that dissemination of resources and findings. Brilliant. And, and actually doing this podcast and is part of that dissemination, I hope. As soon as I heard about the podcast and had was offered the opportunity to host it, um, I, I was excited about this platform. I mean, influencing policy is the dream. You know, we want to influence policy to enhance practice, to make people's lives better. So this is just um, sounds like the ideal international platform supported by world, the World Health Organization. It, it's just very exciting. Um, so thank you for sharing this with us. But I'm really fascinated, actually, because you were talking about the involvement of people um, living with dementia, the engagement of people living with dementia in the review of these resources. And I know, Jim, this is really what um, you, you're part of. H how does that work? Can you tell us a bit more about that? The uh, process is, um, I think, has been a learning experience for everybody. Uh, and uh, Overall, it's been a very positive experience, I, th I think, for everybody. Um, 
there has been the uh, the recognition around the the stigma of dementia and and uh, the misunderstanding of dementia within the within the the broader community, if you will, as well as the research community, and um, uh, and the so the World Health Organization uh, intentionally created this uh, the focus groups to uh, to provide the feedback on. Um, uh, on the um, on the submissions, and I think it's important that the the people with dementia will often provide a whole different perspective to uh, to research or a project or whatever than um, other researchers. Um, and uh, certainly, I was I remember on a project. Uh, talking amongst the, the three of, uh, of us with dementia and the researchers in the background a couple of times one would I'd hear whisper uh, oh I'd not thought of that in that way or that's a different perspective and so I think that um, the World Health I give credit to the World Health Organization to understanding that and creating that and uh, supporting the group and, and they support the group by making sure the information uh, is sent out about a week before uh, so that we do have the opportunity to, to not just read it but to understand the, the context and, and, uh, and uh, make notes to ourselves and, and uh, uh, they and they and they keep that communication going. It's not just let's have the one meeting and see you some other time. It is ongoing, and and uh, it is. Um, I don't know what the right word is, but it is sincere. Like they, it's not just oh we need to do it, so we better just do it. Uh, they um, uh, we we do engage with. Uh, with World Health Organization and certainly the facilitator that we have in uh, in our group, and um, they uh, have a relationship with us, and and uh, I think it has uh, proved to be very, I I dare say, successful because there have been some resources that we have not necessarily uh, approved because because the wording is wrong, because their approach has been wrong. They haven't, in fact, included people with dementia. So I think that that perspective is such an important part of the review process. Can I ask you a follow-up question? As, as a um, speech and language therapist, I'm, I guess, obviously very interested in, in communication. And I was just pondering, is there anything that the organization does to support communication difficulties? I mean, you said that they that you get information sent out in advance and you have focus group kind of discussions. Is there anything else that happens to support communication? Um, well, a readiness to uh, to assist when and if necessary, um, um, if there's a challenge with with one program, we'll 
connect via another one. Uh, um, and we, you know, if we're on a, if we start the meeting and and one of our members um, is not there and suggested that they would be there, then then they, you know, take a moment to send a quick a quick text or email and and inquire and and are they coming or is everything okay or whatever and i think that that's um that's all very positive and and uh it's not just we're we're a group of people that are taken for granted we're not uh, we're not in any way and it's very practicable isn't it that's the real life you know making sure that people are, you know, telephoning them, prompting them, reminding them. That makes so much sense to me. Um, that, that I, I can imagine, though, that some of the vocabulary can be quite challenging if you've got a language difficulty. So, um, but we, we can come to that in a minute because I've got some more questions. Um, I guess, essentially, the biggest question our listeners might be thinking about is how can researchers join the platforms will not only submit their own research, but perhaps become peer reviewers themselves. Laura, can they do that? Yes, thanks for asking that. We're always encouraging people to join our peer review network, uh, especially if you speak another language. We're looking for people with different expertise because we get resources submitted from all over the world. And uh, I try to match them as closely as I can to someone that has that background. So if you go on the platform, at the very bottom of every web page, you'll see kind of a little box that says join the peer review network. And when you click on that, you'll just have to fill out a survey just for basic information for me to gauge, you know, what your background is, making sure you're meeting certain criteria that we need. And we do ask for your CV just to double check your background. And once we review all of that, and if it looks like you'll be suitable to join the peer review network, we just send out some forms that would have to be completed to join that network. And I do want to add that we have caregivers that have joined the network. It doesn't have to be a researcher. Anyone with lived experience can join. We have some people living with dementia that actually have chosen to join a more traditional way of reviewing resources through the peer review network instead, instead of the focus group. So what I do when a person living with dementia is interested in supporting our work, I always have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with them, try to gauge what's the best way that they'd be able to provide that type of feedback. And then based on that, you know, either the focus group, the peer review network, or we can just find other ways, again, going back to communication to support their feedback that to make sure that their views are included in, in the re review process. Lovely. So it's very person-centered, which we like to hear, um, because of course, everybody has different communication needs and difficulties. So um, that's, that's fantastic. And I'm sure really reassuring for any of our listeners who might be living with dementia. And um, you never know that if there, there might be some people out there who are interested in joining. So it sounds like Laura, you've got a really um, bespoke process where people you meet, you speak to people individually to, to plan how, how they can contribute. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. And to follow up on that, Besides resources, um, is there anything else a stakeholder could submit for inclusion on the platform? Yes, of course, the resources are the main thing that we host, but we also have a space for something that we call success stories. So this can be anything that to really broadcast good news stories of what's happening globally. So this can be an initiative that you're starting and you want to just kind of show this is what we're doing. This is what we're seeing so far. 
workshops, awareness campaigns, anything that's not necessarily a resource itself, but it's an initiative that's happening worldwide that you want to broadcast. We also take those in and I typically work with anyone that wants to submit that. We draft something quite short and simple, and then we can link that you know, to other sites where the, the person can find more information about that. So if anyone is interested in kind of just broadcasting some of their work initiatives, good news stories, we always like to hear good news of what's happening worldwide, then they can definitely connect with me and then we can create uh, a success story. So any, everyone else can also learn from your work. Right, so it's not just for very, I know we've been talking about translational research. It, it, it could be if somebody is doing something much more lab-based, they could still think about uploading it to the platform using is that fair the, the yeah. kind of good news stories or have you got that any examples? yeah yeah do you have examples of that to share with our listeners i imagine that would be really useful yeah like things that i can think of right now have a lot to do with dementia friendly initiatives so let's say creating like a group in a cafe of people that are, have come together so those are a lot of the ones that we have gotten so far um a few things came out when to support people living in a crisis, the Ukraine crisis is an example, some resources, like some work that has been done to ensure people living with dementia are still supported during times of a crisis. So we have that up right now and some workshops that we have kind of been involved in worldwide to just showcase that people are coming together to talk about how we can best support uh, not only people living with dementia, but also the research community as a whole. No, I was just going to say, Anna, that, that I, I look at the success stories as a continuation of that whole knowledge exchange uh, process um, because you know we can all learn from success and we can all learn from how success how success was achieved um, and and so I, I I view even the success stories as uh, a whole part of that uh, knowledge exchange yeah that makes sense and actually i i often struggle to uh convey some of my research in more traditional forms because what i do is often about personal stories uh, rather than about say numbers <laughs> um and which is you know often there's a perception that research is about you know something numerical but actually personal stories people's lives um that that's often the biggest success right and that that's a, a wonderful i think that example from the ukraine that really brings alive what you're describing how do you measure that in numbers that's a real life success story it's so moving so um jim the global status report on the public health response to dementia shows that um, despite some encouraging efforts, most countries um, are far from reaching the adopted targets of this global action plan. And um, I don't know, Jim, it, I'd love to hear it in your words. Can you share us, with us how the blueprint for dementia research can help meet those targets? What would be your opinion? I think that it will it will uh, provide insight for uh, for some that that they haven't had or or don't have access to necessarily. 
an understanding that that um, of uh, of the of the global issue is uh, that can be a part of their local issue, uh, their local numbers, and and um, it, in a lot of cases, and I would I would suggest that it it increases the awareness of the global issue it, and the the global concerns, the global um, points of, of um, um, what's the word? The, well, it, all, it also point to areas of um, potential um, generation of new data that oh, we could go to this area or this group of people or whatever. And and really, um, at the end of the day, it also, I think, suggests the credibility of, of talking to and dealing with people with dementia directly. Laura, did you want to add anything? Yeah, just add a little bit of a background for what the Blueprint for Dementia Research is, because some of the listeners may not have heard about this. So this is a product that was launched by the WHO in the fall of last year. And uh, the aim of this blueprint is to support the global prioritization of dementia research. And it provides a coordinated mechanism to facilitate, facilitate timely and high quality evidence generation, fast track innovation, foster effective research and implementation, and really guide resource mobilization. So we know that research should be an integral part to our response to dementia. So all the global targets that are outlining the global action plan would benefit from the fruits of research. And this blueprint provides, as, it, as the name suggests, a blueprint for how we can really move research forward and prioritize it so that it's become that central piece to our response to dementia. And it summarizes the current state of dementia research across the six, six research themes that have been identified. We highlight some gaps that are currently existing, uh, outline some strategic goals, and we also provide some uh, tools on how to address those research uh, gaps. And I do want to just highlight that to make sure uh, research is addressed properly, we need to have an enabling research environment. And that can be achieved through what we call drivers of dementia research. So in the blueprint, we have eight drivers of dementia research. Two of them are things that we're talking about today, which is knowledge translation and the engagement of people living with dementia throughout the research process. So it's a blueprint that we really encourage researchers to read, to be familiar with, and to see how they can support addressing some of the gaps outlined in there and look at their own environment and what are some of the things that perhaps are missing to ensure that they have an enabling environment for their own research. Mm -hmm. So, so what are the six main areas you mentioned at the beginning that the um, that the action plan focuses on? So for the blueprint, we have dementia epidemiology and economics, dementia disease mechanisms and models, dementia diagnosis, drug development and clinical trials, dementia care and support, and then dementia risk reduction. So all the areas that will help us address dementia globally. Brilliant. I think it's funny since we um, planned this um podcast i have since read a couple of things and the dementia care and support domain has been on uh, on a couple of documents i've read and it's it's funny how that it's kind of a bit serendipitous um in relation to communication supports 
Um, so I assume that's, I'm making an assumption, but I guess that's where that fits in, you know, this idea of supporting people and their family members in terms of living well. And I, I assume that's where my research would fit. Um, it, it really, I'm, I'm, as you're speaking about this, I'm thinking about my research and I'm, um, and I'm doing a study at the minute and we're trying to get, um, we're trying to involve people from across all the major World Health Organization regions of the world. And, it, and it's really challenging actually to engage people across every single region. Um, but we, we found it so valuable when we have been able to, and so important. Um, you know, people have, in fact, I've all, almost realized the act of approaching people in these different areas is a driver. It's enabling. I've been able to just approach people who I've, who I know through my networks, and then it's enabled them to contribute to what they perceive to be a wider, more important study. So they feel really have given me really positive feedback on that. And I've, there's only one region I haven't managed to, to, uh, to get any, any kind of collaborator in, but, um, I think that's that I, I shall look at the blueprint and, and use that to fuel my thinking, um, yeah. about everything there. Even in what you just shared, you've already mentioned a few things that are mentioned in the blueprint. Uh, equity and inclusion, of course, is very big. We need to make sure people are included that are typically not. And that means, you know, reaching out to people from low and middle income countries that either haven't had the opportunity or because of stigma, really, it, it's very difficult for them to even feel empowered or safe to participate in things. Sometimes it's, it's really about safety. So I, I like how you mentioned that, you know, some people have come back to you and said, you know, now I feel more inclined to participate in other things because that shows empowerment. That shows that you provided an avenue for them to feel like I can't do this. I can still contribute. And we're acknowledging that they have such valuable input to provide. Yeah. And, and it's quite fascinating because they're the, the people I work with, the clinical researchers, so speech and language researchers who I, you know, I really respect and, and I've, I've done you know i've been in meetings with and then they've said oh i don't feel confident to do research because of the research field is so dominated by english-speaking people for example but now you're an english-speaking person helping me i was saying oh i didn't even of course that makes so much sense you know i'm bilingual i couldn't do i would struggle to convey my research in my other language i can see what i can see that issue and and actually it's fostered a really um, it's actually very pleasing for everybody involved. It's not just, it's it's actually, I found it to create an ongoing environment of collaboration. Um, so it's not just about the project you're doing, it's then the the kind of future potential is, is great as well. Yeah. yeah, I think Jim and I actually had a conversation last week and it's all about collaboration. Like how do we foster yeah. Collaboration, to, so we can work together, because we need one another to be able to make big, big changes and big impact at the global, local level, any level. We need collaborations. Absolutely, but that's hard. Easier said than done. <laughs> yes, <Although sometimes. laughs> It's also recognizing that um, what happens in in your part of the world may not, in fact, be the way. It, it's done in, in another part of the world. Um, I always, uh, that's where I became a lot uh, very aware of the difference even between urban and rural. Um, just for a 
contract I had where the chair was uh, in a rural part of, of my province and I was urban and, and he would often reinforce to me. So it's, it's uh, firmly ensconced in my brain that what happens in, in the metropolitan area uh, doesn't always translate well. And so I think that that extends to what you were talking about for your own research. Uh, I think in a lot of cases, people in, in other parts of the world will even be surprised that you're approaching them just simply because they, they have not been approached before. Uh, and so your recognition of their potential contribution and your potential contribution to them is um, uh, is really um, well 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 received I suspect as you say their contributions are so valuable to me I find it's it's really um, illuminating different people's priorities are illuminating you know I always I don't I, I don't always assume I think with my clinical hat on I've learned never to assume <laughs> but um, you know you have these ideas that everyone has the same or similar priorities for various reasons. But of course, for cultural, for economic reasons, for lots of reasons, our values, our beliefs, there may be huge differences, um, but, they, but there may, and we can learn from those differences and similarities. It's so, yeah, I, I, I can only um, advocate for collaboration. It's always been illuminating for me, I've, and I have that, I have that luxury. I feel like it's a great privilege to keep learning from people. Um, and we've already, we've already been, so this me sharing my, I'm pretty good at talking, unfortunately, though, as a speech and language therapist. And um, I've gone and sh shared my own experience, my own example, but I wondered if we could talk about a concrete example of what the research community can do to make dementia research more efficient, equitable and impactful. I don't know, Laura or Jim, who would like to take this one? Sounds good. So when thinking about the blueprint, I think there's different levels of people that can you know, support the implementation of the blueprint. Thinking more national and international research and agencies and funding bodies that can use their research to really prioritize their funding streams. So look at the current gaps and how can we have funding streams that really address those gaps. Uh, as a civil society and advocates, so people living with dementia, clinicians, researchers, we can use the blueprint to advocate for, you know, research that aligns with that, but also for enabling environments. How can we work together to really create an environment that is enabling of research? And also as researchers, you know, look at the blueprint and look at the gaps and how can your work help support like bridging those gaps? Um, from like an equity lens, making sure we are forming those partnerships with low and middle income countries is really important. And just within our own research, making sure there's that diversity, you know, included in there. Again, easier said than done. I know sometimes there's processes that make it difficult to just know where to look for those individuals or how to engage them. But we really need to start prioritizing that uh, to just improve all diversity and inclusion. Um, for data sharing, I think data sharing is an interesting one because through the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen how when people come together and we share data, what, what can happen? So even looking at current laws and regulations to make sure you know we can exchange data 
And within our own, you know, research, is there a way that we, we can share data with others that they might be able to use within their own projects? So those are just some strategies and yeah, thoughts that I have on how we can make more concrete actions to, you know, enable research. And that's becoming easier and easier, isn't it? Data sharing with the, with kind of tech and making sure we can keep things confidential. I know um, I'm, I know I'm I'm part of a project where we're collaborating on some video data, um, which we're sharing across a number of European countries, looking at conversation strategies, but then data like, you know, big data spreadsheets, you can, that's sometimes a bit more, um, I don't know, it strikes me as a bit more feasible to share that data somehow. Yes, um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> my, my last question, actually, I, and I, this is, I think this is going to be a, a longer answer, a bit of a conversation really, is about how we can give researchers or how you would like to give researchers advice. So if researchers are considering how to engage people living with dementia in their work, what would you say to them? What advice would you give them, Jim? I would, number one, encourage them. Just bottom line, just, um, um, you know, yes, you can. Um, but it, it starts from, um, from listening, it starts from learning, but it, it, uh, it, it, I would suggest that the way to start would be to check your assumptions at the door, um, because each person living with dementia um, is like anyone else, uh, whether they're employed in a company or whatever, that we all have different skills. We all have different um, uh, talents that we bring to uh, to anything we do. And, and um, I always remember hearing a presentation from a, um, a researcher talking about their, uh, their process of 10 cups of tea and, and it was uh, their suggestion of before doing uh, in fully engaging, um, sit down and have a conversation with um, with the people with dementia. Have a get to know them and and get to know that the let them get to know you as well and and what you're looking for, what they're looking for, what they and and so. Um, I, I had written down that Dr. Deb O'Connor and I co-wrote a chapter in a, in a text um, that uh, Everyday Citizenship and People with Dementia, in which is written, and I quote, all collaborators have to feel safe and that they have something important to offer. And establishing this foundation takes time. So it's, it's um, recognizing that you as a researcher can do so much, but like I said uh, near the beginning of, of this podcast, that, that um, a person actually living with dementia brings different perspectives on some things that will work, some things that won't work. And um, I think to be open to that is um, 
will only enhance the research and uh, make the outcomes uh, more applicable and, and uh, hopefully more uh, uh, useful around the world. I develop a lot of interventions and I have a vivid memory of someone saying to me, Anna, if you just put a margin, a kind of a margin on all the handouts, it would look so much more attractive and people would feel more valued. And it was somebody who came from media, a media background. And I said, oh, I said, really? And the entire group said, yes, that's a genius idea. And I hadn't, it was so simple so valuable, such, an, such a small um, component that I could easily change and the impact and was great. And it was from someone who knew what they were talking about. They knew about layout, they knew about, and so that I, I, you know, that comment about people having so many different skills that they can bring to your work. Um, I, I don't know about media and graphics. That's not my, I've got no skills in that field, but that's actually quite handy to have some people with these different creative skills as well as life experience. Um, yeah. And, that, yeah, and I, that you extend to people with dementia in yeah. research that, that is in that particular area. But we know that, that society generally... Uh, uh, including researchers, can often assume uh, the, uh, a lack of capacity for people with dementia, the automatic, uh, the automatic assumption of incapability. And, um, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's too easy to, to fall into that trap. I, I talk about unconscious bias in that way in that it's it's that stereotype that is firmly placed you know in in the back of people's minds that you're not even aware necessarily um, of that but it kicks in and um, and so it's just you know in some ways it's be open to possibilities um, and um, and you may be really really surprised. This is such a key component, you know, it's, it makes, you know, you'd have a cup of tea with your colleague over a, over a meeting, wouldn't you? So why wouldn't you have a cup of tea with a person living with dementia? It's the same kind of familiarity, the same sense of collaboration and, and um, collegialness that you're trying to foster. Um, yeah, so I have to say, um, refreshments, cake, tea, that I can see why they're essential. Yeah, but I, I think that so many people will be um, um, thinking of the of the you know scholastic aspect of research. The um, oh, I'm not I'm not a scholar. I'm not a researcher. So they will be somewhat in, or could be intimidated to sit in a in a in a restaurant and have your cup of tea and, and cake um, is, uh, you know, sort of normalizes the situation and removes that, that, oh my God, I couldn't do that. 
and makes it more of a peer-to-peer -peer type of conversation potentially. Yeah, I th yeah. So setting setting makes a really big difference. That's I'm I'm glad you're flagging that. Yeah, because and it's really, you know, the the thing is, academic science needs to be described in a way that it makes sense to everybody because otherwise it's potentially maybe i'm a bit biased it's potentially not very useful <laughs> and if people can't understand it um that's my feeling maybe that's my clinical hat um but laura did you want to add anything to to what we've been saying i think what jim just mentioned it really goes down to listening you know stepping back and, and listening to people i was reflecting on even my own journey when i was doing my master's degree and it was a quantitative work all numbers but i i still wanted that personal experience with people living with dementia so i just volunteered the whole time i was doing my degree just to get a better understanding of why am i even doing this research so that goes back to individuals that are doing just basic science which is so important but oftentimes you're not as connected to the person living with dementia, but finding opportunities, finding ways to still have their voice present in all the work that we do, because at the end of the day, we, we're doing it for a reason and connecting with people living with dementia. With technology nowadays, you can watch videos, you know, read books. There's many ways that we can listen and get informed. And again, be open to possibilities and just acknowledge that we're not the experts in everything. We have an expertise in something, but that doesn't make us the experts in dementia necessarily. You know, at the end of the day, I don't live with the condition and I, all I can do is just learn from those that do and then do better. I'm guessing that sometimes people with, well, I believe that sometimes people with dementia and their family members can probably help basic scientists join the dot from their, their work to the real life um, translational work and actually enhance their research in, in many ways. We're probably drawing to the end of our conversation. We've been chatting for nearly an hour um, probably wraps it up for today. So thank you to both of our guests, Jim and Laura. It's been such an interesting discussion and I'm really excited about this new platform. I'm going to immediately go and look it up and um, see what I can do, see if I can upload some of my things on there. Um, now we have profiles on all of today's panelists on the website, including details of their Twitter accounts and the platform itself. So please do take a look. And finally, please remember to like, subscribe in whichever app you're listening in. And remember to visit the Dementia Researcher website where we publish new content every day from careers and science blogs job listings, funding calls and events, and so much more, and perhaps some of my own blogs too. Anyway, have a great day and goodbye, everybody. Bye. 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 Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support.